The levels of interest rates are still not far away from where we were in history, but the increases came very rapidly. And this, of course, creates stress wherever that exposure to higher interest rates is very large. Welcome to Radio Davos, the podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at the biggest challenges and how we might solve them. Today, we're diving into the World Economic Forum's latest chief economist outlook and exploring the state of the global economy. Could it be better? Of course. Is it actually quite optimistic from where we came from, where I thought we would be, let's say, six months ago, I'm actually quite optimistic. Christian Keller, head of economic research at Barclays, talks us through all the big economic questions, inflation, the cost of living crisis, and the fall of Silicon Valley Bank and Credit Suisse, and the stability of the banking sector. They've been taken out of some of the tougher and more stringent regulations that were applied to the larger banks. And I think that's now backfired, and I would not be surprised if from here they are being brought back into that tighter supervision, meaning in particular a more focus on liquidity. Keller also provides insight on the resurgence of government industrial policy, the swift opening of China's economy and the ongoing restructuring of global supply chains. You may also manage to bring back production of semiconductors into your own country, which before had been really concentrated in a few hubs in Asia and in the US, but it comes at a cost. Subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts or visit wef.ch slash podcasts, where you'll also find our sister programs, Meet the Leader, Agenda Dialogues on the World Economic Forum Book Club podcast. I'm Robin Pomeroy at the World Economic Forum. And with this look at the forum's chief economist outlook, this is Radio Davos. As the World Economic Forum's Growth Summit gets underway in Geneva, this episode is dedicated to the Chief Economist Outlook, a report that the Forum publishes every three months or so, taking the temperature of the global economy. My colleague Spencer Feingold spoke to Christian Keller, the head of economic research at Barclays, and started by asking him whether he thought a global recession is on the horizon. We are far away from from what I think what one would call a, a global recession. You know, we see growth in 23 around. 2.7% or so, that's not high by uh, you know, historical standards for global growth, but it's still uh, you know, it's, it's, it's away from, from what you would call a recession. I'm curious if we could talk a bit about you know, regional growth. We're going to see you know, people are optimistic about growth in East Asia and the Pacific, especially with China reopening. What do you think is driving that growth, growth in that region? I mean, on China, we do know it's, it's the reopening, right? It was an economy that performed very, very poorly last year. I mean, 3% growth last year for China is very low. They had a very uh, draconian uh, COVID policy, zero tolerance towards any outbreak. So a lot of lockdowns. Last year around this time, we had Shanghai, you know, one of the economic center in a way, lockdown. And that, of course, had impact on, on the rest of the region. Actually, it had impact on the world, but in particular on, on Asia. So with China, uh, uh, you know, now coming back on stream, so to say, that's a big, uh, big change for the region. But there are also stories like India, you know, there are idiosyncratic stories. There are stories of, you know, an economy that's still a lot of uh, demographic growth, uh, you know, an economy that is benefiting now partly, one has to say, also from cheap energy out of Russia. And, you know, so there's, uh, it's more than China. It's, it's, as I said, it's India, it's uh, Indonesia and other larger economies that are growing domestically based on domestic uh, sources. 
And, and we saw, I mean, we saw recent, uh, recent information from the IMF that China is going to be the far biggest source of growth in the next five years, that the BRICS countries are now going to outpace the G7 countries in a, um, with regards to growth. Is that going to become the new norm, you think, in the next few years, with the growth really being driving from those countries in those regions? You know, f- first of all, that, that is not new, right? I mean, the, the, the height of emerging market optimism was actually, you know, uh, 10 years back. It, it came... It started before the global financial crisis. Actually, it, it even increased after the global financial crisis when China in 2008-9, when, you know, Europe and the U.S. was in deep recession, China managed to really uh, pull off a very, very strong growth based on large investment that drove commodity prices, helped, you know, helped emerging markets around the world, pulled commodity prices higher, etc., And those were the days when there was real optimism about the BRICS, you know, Russia, uh, Brazil. Uh, uh, India, obviously, South Africa, and China. I would say that optimism has cooled a lot. You look at Russia now, I don't think we need to say much. You know, it's, 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 it did better than some people expected, but, you know, it has really, really um, uh, reduced its long-term growth prospects. Um, Brazil, you know, it's, it's growing now uh, uh, much, much lower than in the past, and we don't see it changing a lot in the near future. India is the exception. South Africa also, uh, you know, which is a very small economy, by the way, in comparison, but it's part of the BRICS. Uh, but, you know, India doing well. But overall, it may still be true that the contribution of, of you know, in particular India and China to global growth will be stronger than that of G7. But that is not necessarily new. Uh, and if we look at it in detail, I would still think that a lot of the optimism on EM in general is actually uh, has faded a lot. And, uh, you know, China now sees a strong rebound, but structurally, and I think that includes the IMF, we, you know, generally economists think that China will be slowing structurally in growth over the coming, over the coming years, given demographics and, and given the past growth boom that they had. Great. And, and, and you mentioned the United States before. Where, where do you see, how do you see the economic health of the United States right now and kind of in the, in the, in the rest of 2023? the growth that'll be coming from the U.S.? Yeah, the U.S. is at a turning point. I mean, they, they were growing quite healthily last year. Uh, there was a s- slowdown in the, in the final month of last year, uh, which turned out to be a, a head fake. Uh, it, it, you know, the, it, the growth came back in the, in the beginning of this year. Um, very robust labor market. So people have jobs. Uh, wages are growing 5-6%. Uh, so there is a lot of momentum still. But we see the signs of slowing, uh, and and that is a slowing that is desired uh, for by policymakers, in particular the the Fed, uh, to tame inflation. And so what we see now is um, the beginning of a shallow recession starting in the second half in the third quarter. Uh, you know, still as I said, shallow recession by 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 the standards or historical standards. Uh, but uh, it is likely we think that the U.S. goes into negative growth, not only from the policy tightening, but also some of the banking turmoil that we saw recently probably leads to tighter credit standards, so less bank lending. And, you know, that adds up, we think, to to slowing the economy into negative quarter-on-quarter growth rates. Well, that parlay is kind of into the next, uh, the next topic about inflation and the cost of living crisis. You know, we've seen in the last year or two inflation soar uh, across the world. Uh, and consumers have definitely taken a hit on that. In our report, we found that 70% of chief economists said that the cost of living crisis will remain throughout 2023. 
we have seen some headlines that inflation is going down earlier this year. Do you think that was false hope and we ha- still have an, uh, an inflation problem on our hands for consumers? Well, I think um, we certainly saw the peak in headline inflation, at least for the for now. Uh, you know, year-on-year inflation rates have, have peaked earlier in the U.S., but now also in, 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 in the euro area. They're coming down. There's a, there are large what we call base effects, meaning, you know, the, the high inflation uh, last year, the high levels that we have uh, will help to bring down year-on-year inflation rates from here. But, you know, certain aspects of inflation, you know, the non-energy inflation, non-food and non-energy inflation, the core inflation has been quite robust, uh, and uh, particularly in Europe. And and that has to do with, you know, uh, strong labor markets, relatively strong wage growth, and the so-called second round effects where, you know, the the high input prices, energy and and others, um, have allowed company or Companies were able to pass on these high input prices, uh, these second round effects, because demand is still relatively robust. And, you know, um, I think for central banks to be comfortable that, you know, headline inflation will not only come down from where it was, but go steadily towards 2%, which is the official target, uh, they will be concerned about making sure that this core inflation, those underlying inflation dynamics actually continue to come down. And, And there we may not actually... We may not be fully convinced yet because rates there remain quite high. And uh, even by end of the year, we are still in, in core inflation often above 3% in our forecasts. I'm, I'm curious, too, you brought up the 2% inflation goal that's been the goal for many, many years. Do you think uh, there's been talk of people rethinking that 2% level? What do, you, what do you think about that? Is 2% still a good goal for central banks around the world in our day and age? I think there's a, a, there are two questions here. One is, in a way, in principle, why 2%? And a lot of people have been asking this, wasn't it just, uh, you know, was it just coincidence? You know, the, actually the New Zealand, Central Bank of New Zealand in the early 90s that introduced inflation targeting, came up with it, and then everyone followed. Once you have a critical mass, having two as a large country, you maybe don't want to deviate because it would mean you have a permanent inflation differential to some large country like the US or Europe. Um, and is it the right target? Now, uh, there's been a lot of debate and some prominent economists have suggested would it may be better to have three or four. Now, even if that was true, and it has to do with wanting to be away from the zero, which, you know, if you think about normal rigidities and the fact that you may not want to go into negative interest rates, there is something that speaks for having a big of a buffer, right? And also in a in a world where you have a lot of structural changes, and we think we are probably in an episode like this, again, if you believe there are nominal rigidities, as we call it, meaning that in particular wages tend not to be cut nominally, uh, having some more inflation allows the adjustments to take in real terms. So you have real wage adjustments, for example. So all this speaks maybe for having a bit more uh, a higher inflation target to grease the economy a bit more. All this being said, if you start with a clean sheet, maybe you decide on 3% now rather than on 2 But the question is, of course, when do you make such a transition? If where you start from is not a clean sheet, you start from the reality of 2%. Having worked actually quite well, if you take a, you know, the outlook from the 90s or so. Uh, and in a situation where you're above 2 and you suddenly say our new target is 3 will it actually create the same time of confidence that we had in the past, the, the credibility that was so useful in bringing inflation down? Or will people say, well, 
these central bankers, they cannot get back to two. So they're telling us three now. And in, effectively, it will be even higher. And you lose that credibility, you know, that stability in inflation expectations, which has been so crucial in in maintaining a low and stable inflation environment. And that is a big risk. And I stop here, but I mean, this is exactly where some economists who say, ideally, maybe we would like to have three or four. Making the transition now in a situation where you're still far away from it could actually be so detrimental and, the, and you know, that, that we rather stick with the two. I'm I'm in that camp, frankly. Well, speaking about, uh, you know, central bank dilemmas, we are seeing now we've had high interest rates and other contractionary monetary policies for some time now uh, trying to reel in inflation. But we're also seeing financial distress in certain sectors. So we we see central bankers trying to balance those two things. How do you see that dilemma? Are are the high interest rates going to continue? And do you see ripple effects worsening throughout uh, various sectors? There is now a, a certain uh, a dilemma, you call it, we could call it, you know, a certain, uh, you know, financial dominance, as has been called in the past, whereby, uh, in part, by the way, through because of central bank actions in the past, and, you know, they as they try to uh, save economies from... Uh, uh, from deeper recession and also prevent uh, deflation in, in certain areas, you know, they kept monetary policy very expansive and, and that has led to, you know, markets uh, re- getting used to very low interest rates and uh, and and therefore uh, taking on risks that they otherwise probably wouldn't, meaning, you know, uh, high debt and a lot of duration risk, meaning, uh, you know, risks that mean you are very exposed to increases in interest rates. And, and obviously we've seen... Uh, a very large increases in interest rates, uh, a very rapid increases. I think that's more important. You know, the levels of interest rates are still, you know, not far away from where we were in history, but the increases came very rapidly. And this, of course, now creates stress wherever that duration exposure, that exposure to higher interest rates is very large, where debt is high, where people have banked on, on interest rates staying low for long. We've seen this now in some regional banks in the U.S., but we've seen it also before in some U.K. pension funds, etc. It's the triggers are different and the exact dynamics are never exactly the same. But the underlying is always that, you know, they were betting on rates or were not ready to see interest rates to go up so rapidly. Right. And, and we see I mean, we've had headlines in recent days about U.S. and European stocks being down. We've had some very disappointing earnings from some big Wall Street figures um, in the first quarter. Do you think these are all ripple effects from kind of that steep, steep interest rate hikes that we've seen? Well, these are a part part. I mean, one has to say we saw some very good earnings results from very large U.S. banks, from the larger ones that see actually, you know, the uh, transition from depositors from the weaker, smaller regional banks to them. So I think the, the earnings were not uniformly poor. But what we see, obviously, um, uh, the effects from higher interest rates, not necessarily directly on those balance sheets, but what we see is the effects of, of slower growth, right? Of, of, uh, um, of yeah, I would say both, you know, of, of slower growth and also of, of course, higher financing costs and, you know, the, the need to slow the economy. And we kind of hinted at, you know, some of the banking disruptions that we've seen in recent months, particularly in the United States and in Switzerland. Do you think those two episodes have dampened some of the economic optimism that we felt, you know, perhaps earlier this year? Well, I, I think they certainly had an effect on, on banking sectors. I mean, I would say, by the way, just as an additional remark to your earlier question, I mean, if you look at overall performance of equity markets, it's still uh, very, very robust. 
if you think from where we are now compared to the beginning of the year, um, you know, it's, it's quite, quite resilient, actually. I mean, in the markets, the question is much more often, why are equity markets still so strong? Don't they see, you know, that a U.S. recession is becoming more likely? So, you know, I, I would just say that as, a, as an additional comment to what you said about, you know, Q1 earnings. I mean, as I said, overall, still a very, uh, quite an optimistic uh, equity market. Now, I think what... Uh, the episode earlier in March has shown is um, that banks obviously are, uh, you know, are in, in an environment now where they they can be vulnerable uh, to the risks of being exposed to longer term interest rate exposure, duration risk. And at the same time, as banks are in the business of maturity transformation, they're always exposed to a loss of confidence and the potential withdrawal of deposits. And I think... Uh, you know, we, we have seen that obviously in March, where this was the cause ultimately for uh, the runs on, on Credit Suisse, but also Silicon Valley Bank, uh, 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 a Signature Bank, and, and some other uh, uh, regional bank that have had heavy de- deposit losses. And, and the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, Credit Suisse, where, did those surprise you when, it, when, when that happened? Well, I think, uh, I think they surprised everyone. I think that's fair to say, because uh, otherwise there hadn't been, hadn't been such a such a crisis if it had been a well-announced and well-anticipated uh, event. You know, uh, I think it's fair to say that many, many people probably hadn't heard of Silicon Valley Bank before, uh, you know, and, and generally weren't looking at those, those regional banks. Um, Credit Suisse had been in the limelight for some time, uh, but I, I don't think many had thought that uh, uh, the, the, the process or the deterioration that was suddenly uh, accelerating within really days uh, I think that was not anticipated by by anyone, really. A couple of statistics that also stood out to me when I was reading through the forum's uh, chief economist report. 69% of chief economists said that they thought the banking disruption, the, the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, the collapse of Credit Suisse were isolated incidents. But also 67% said that they predict further bank failures and other serious bank disruptions throughout this year. So I'm curious what you think about those two stats and kind of how you square that circle. Yeah, I, you know, I was confronted with those questions, and I, I, I think it's it's in a way both. I think, uh, I think people realize that if you look at the, at the exact um, dynamics and 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 you know the the various steps and exposures, for example, at Silicon Bank, they're very particular. So that's why I think, uh, you know, it is fair to say that it's it's an isolated event. Now, uh, what we also have learned, however, given that we had. Similar events, you know, in, in, as I said, UK pension funds in, in, the, in the fall, right? Uh, uh, the the, the um, uh, liability-driven investment-related uh, kind of a crisis. You know, that tells you that um, other institutions are prone to eventually, uh, um, you know, face difficulties as interest rates go up and probably stay higher for some time. That's our forecast. And... You know, you have a lot of exposure also, for example, in real estate, and you will have banks that are exposed to real estate or other institutions that are exposed to, to real estate. Or It's just one example. I don't want to pick on one sector, but everywhere where you have this exposure, you know, it's likely that there will be business models that, um, you know, re- didn't have high margins enough and relied on continuing being able to finance themselves at very, very low rates. So you should have further, uh, you should have further fallout. And I think the difference is, whether one believes that turns into systemic crisis, i.e. something akin to 2008 and 9. 
And that's where we and, and many other economists are probably more optimistic. And that's why I think you get this kind of uh, apparently, or, uh, you know, maybe, maybe apparent inconsistency where people say, you know, this was idiosyncratic, but at the same time, we will see more, but overall not seeing a necessarily a systemic crisis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What about, I mean, aside from the banking industry, do you think a, a lack of confidence in the banking industry or, or particular disruptions will have some kind of trickle down? It'll slow down investments, particularly in sectors like, say, technology? Well, um, first, I think it's it's a general assumption, and we think that is correct, that uh, the episode of March will add to something that we saw already, and that is a a tightening of bank lending conditions. And, you know, th- that was in a way to be expected. You know, we, we came from a from a situation where liquidity was extremely, uh, um, uh, extremely widely and easily available, where interest rates were very, very low now to a situation where uh, interest rates are have gone up uh, decisively. Now, interestingly, initially, that helped banks because banks passed this on in their lending activity, but not immediately on their deposits. And so the that steepening of the curve, so to say, for banks has helped because uh, they made more on their assets, didn't have to pay everything, uh, didn't have to pass everything on to depositors. That, of course, now has changed because we saw the depositors leaving. In the US, they have alternative not only going to other banks, but going to money market funds. So that pushes uh, interest rates uh, 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 that they have to pay for depositors. So the interest rate margin between lending and 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 uh, lending and paying on the deposit is is reducing, is coming down, uh, so that hurts. And so, overall, you know, the slowing economy also makes banks more reluctant to lend. So, there was already a process of of tightening bank of of, of lending standards. The crisis now in in March uh, has only accelerated this. So, in particular, in the U.S., we think that the regional banks will lend less, and that will have an impact on growth. So that 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 will. Uh, Will certainly happen. Um, there are certain sectors which will be particularly hurt, and in general, those tend to be those that uh, had most to gain from the very low interest rate that the environment that we had before. And again, tech comes to mind, and and real estate. Uh, those were most reliant on this very very uh, cheap financing, and uh, those are now, uh, so to say, on the other side of it. And lastly, on the, on this topic, we saw both in the U.S. and in Switzerland in March, uh, the government step in, you know, quite quite forcefully uh, to to manage these crises. Um, it got a lot of people thinking about revamping banking regulations. Do you think? Do you foresee that in the coming year? And and kind of what's your take on on how the recent banking disruptions will influence regulation on the banking sector? I think actually in Europe, the feeling is that even though it it you know it was also affected by what originally happened in, uh, in in the US in Silicon Valley Bank and some other regional banks and then of course what happened in Switzerland with Credit Suisse but if you look at it overall European banks actually uh, remain quite resilient so my impression for now is that Europeans while you know obviously not uh, 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 you know not being ignorant to risks that continue to be there but I think they're quite feel vindicated that the fact the way uh, uh, European banks were supervised and regulated actually made them relatively resilient in this situation. So I, I, I'm not sure whether they are already contemplating additional regulations. Um, but I think what we see in the US, uh, without going too much into the details, but but you know that what happened there is that the regional banks, you know, those banks that have been now commented under, under pressure, they actually had been to some extent deregulated. They've been taken out 
of some of the tougher, uh, more stringent regulations that were applied to the larger banks. And I think this is now that's now backfired. And I would I, I would not be surprised if from here they're being brought back into that tighter supervision, uh, meaning in particular, you know, uh, a more focus on 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 credit uh, on on liquidity liquidity ratios that had been relaxed, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I think that will, ser- that will probably happen in the, in the U.S., undoing some of that easing that had been done earlier in the area of, of regional, small and medium banks. Right. So just to turn the page a little bit, hoping to discuss industrial policy with you. You know, for years before, governments have taken kind of a light-handed approach to industrial policies. But with COVID in the last few years, we've seen governments really ramp it up. Uh, you know, our report shows the vast majority of chief economists say industrial policy will be kind of the future, will be a, a guiding principle for uh, global economies in the coming years. Uh, we see that with semiconductor legislations in the U.S., in the European Union. China, of course, has its Made in China 2025 framework. Um, do you think industrial policy is, a, is, you know, officially back? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I, I think that's, uh, uh, that is what uh, politicians have been saying. And, uh, you know, it has basically um, been driven by, by A, what you said, the pandemic and the renewed focus on resilience. Uh, and I say renewed, I shouldn't be, because I, I think resilience in a way was really not, not focused for almost 20, 30 years during globalization. I think the main focus was efficiency and it worked, uh, it worked you know, very, very well for a long period. You know, they, we reduced the costs. Uh, we had almost, uh, you know, we had just-in-time manufacturing. We no longer need warehouses, etc. But we also became very reliant on, on certain supply chains with sometimes, you know, uh, single places in China, for example, being responsible for, like, a, uh, you know, for, for uh, very important products and supply chains. So I think it has become clear during the pandemic that one wanted to be uh, more resilient to that. Um, I think the pandemic has also uh, made uh, countries uh, more aware of potential geopolitical risks. Uh, and, and you mentioned that China for a long time has already had a, or permanently had actually always uh, uh, um, some kind of industrial policy. Um, and that has become clear now to Western countries that if one large player like China is having one and and uh, the rest plays in a you know f- free trade WTO system, that, that can lead to uh, disadvantages. So I think there's certain reaction to that. And of course, um, the desire to make the transition uh, to a uh, you know to 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 to, to a greener economy, you know that energy green transition, is also asking for a bit more bank, uh, sorry, for a bit more state intervention, so to say. And I think you take all these together, and uh, you have a larger larger state uh, involved uh, with uh, giving you know giving more uh, uh, playing a bigger role in investments in particular, and in trying to direct those investments. Mm-hmm. Are there anything you're concerned about kind of the, the return of industrial policy? You know, we, we saw the majority of chief economists say this could exacerbate geopolitical tensions. Already we're seeing some trade restrictions by U.S., other European countries on uh, trade with high technologies with China. Do you worry about that, uh, kind of inflaming geopolitical tensions, these policies? Um, Certainly, I think uh, even without the geopolitical tensions, you could argue what's you know chicken or egg. I mean, you could say the geopolitical tensions caused this, and you know. So, uh, uh, but what is what is certain is that we are coming out of a 
world where for I would say three, four decades or so, really since uh, you know since since the eighties or at least since the nineties, and then in particular accelerated since two thousand one when uh, when when the China joined the WTO one or two. I'm sorry about that. Um, you know we had we had a, a a trend that we roughly can describe as globalization, and that led to you know uh, disinflation. Um, you know, less business cycles. And it led to something what we call the great moderation, which we had since the mid 80s or so, you know, that we had less crisis, even if we had downturns that were less severe, uh, inflation was more stable. And, you know, companies could tap a global workforce, etc. I, I mean, you, that is, in a way, what we call globalization. And that led to a great moderation when it comes to macro. And if you end this, you may gain on you know, resilience, that's true in crisis situation. Uh, you may also manage to have, uh, you know, bring back production of semiconductors into your own country, which before had been really concentrated in a few hubs in Asia and in the US. But it comes at a cost. And as economists, you know, uh, we, of course, uh, also think of those costs of uh, the inefficiencies, uh, the, the inflation, the lower growth, the higher volatility it will likely create. Um, and... Uh, you know, I think the geopolitical part of it is is true too. You know, because once you have decoupled, by the way, which is a big question still, how far we get into in that. But but you know, then of course you're less reliant, and maybe there's a bigger tendency than to uh, continue on that path on moving away from trade relations with other countries. But as I said, I, I think just to make that quick comment, I mean, I I think we. Uh, it, it's still not clear how far we are. I mean, we certainly see a reshifting of supply chains, but um, particularly when it comes to China, I see many, many companies still wanting to export into China, produce in China. So I think we uh, we have to still see how far the so-called decoupling or, or, or deglobalization will really go. Yeah, well, that was going to be my next question. I mean, do you think deglobalization is too strong a word to use today? I mean, I know we're trending that direction, but but today, are we not there yet? Yeah, I would call it, yeah, I, I would say that is correct. I think, uh, you know, if you want to use these uh, terms, I think we are probably have seen uh, a decade, multi-decade long trend that I would call globalization with all the things I described earlier. We now probably are in a phase where this has peaked in the sense of like increasing trade every year, global trade as a, as a share of global GDP. That already had peaked probably 10, 10, 15 years ago. And, and there had been so much going on in the decades before that there was a natural peak. And now uh, what we see, however, now is a, a, a rethinking of, of, you know, global value chains. Uh, supply chains are being redesigned and it's a, a lot is a redirection of global trade flows. And uh, it will be, um, as I said, it will be a globalization that ne- no, no longer necessarily just driven by cost efficiencies, but by considerations as geopolitical fault lines, you know, friend shoring, and uh, in part maybe also by by, by uh, um, environmental concerns. You know, how far do I need to ship products? You know, shouldn't I be nearer also for that reason? Um, you know, carbon could be become less important. A lot of global trade was actually dominated by shipping oil around, right? If if we suddenly go towards uh, renewable energies, uh, suddenly the focus shifts on certain minerals and metals that, that are needed for that, and maybe less so on oil. Those are not coming necessarily from the same country. So, in a in a nutshell, we will continue to see, I think, global activity, but it will be. Um, 
it will be shaped by different needs and different considerations than the globalization that we've seen in the past three decades or so. Mm -hmm. And lastly, on supply, supply chains, I mean, we've seen the war in Ukraine, we've seen COVID, we've seen new industrial policies, all of that is having an effect on supply chains. And companies are having to rethink how they move goods, how they buy goods, how they, how they sell goods. Uh, but we're also seeing certain technologies like AI in these various uh, technological developments that can optimize things like supply chains. Do you think those will even out? Like, are you optimistic about businesses managing these kind of new economic order, this new, these new supply chain fault lines? I think I'm optimistic. It's a matter of the time frame. You know, I think uh, there is no doubt that if you were a company that had extensive, uh, you know, uh, production lines and also markets to sell in, in Russia and Ukraine, you know, the immediate impact you're feeling now is negative. And, and the same if you are, you know, very involved in China and you wonder how to, you know, possibly uh, um, you know, shift away from that. Now, if you move beyond the next uh, few years, though, or, or you know, to medium term, I, I think you are very right that uh, we now see, um, particularly in AI, de AI developments that are uh, that could be uh, boosting productivity. And you know, productivity has been very difficult to predict. If you look at history, it often happened, you know, long after certain in inventions. And, uh, you know, and when things probably came from an invention into general purpose technologies, I think some of the things that we are watching at the moment that we're seeing in, in uh, artificial intelligence are moving in that direction, i.e. general purpose technologies. So uh, um, I, I, I'm actually quite optimistic on uh, uh, companies being able to use those, exploit those, and possibly overcoming some of the inefficiencies that are created by certain aspects of deglobalization through technology. So uh, if you ask me, you know, currently lots of stress because we're in the transition, uh, medium term, I think uh, 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 there'll be, there be new efficiency gain through uh, maybe not necessarily, you know, globalization related uh, uh, changes that, that should help companies. They're not helping companies. You know, our report found that most chief economists think that companies nowadays should prioritize resilience over efficiency. And that diversification of suppliers is key to, you know, to prospering in the new economic order. Would you advise companies about that as well? Well, these are very abstract terms. You know, I mean, I, you know, resilience is, has been become very uh, uh, buzzword in a way during the pandemic. And I think, uh, look, clearly, uh, I think we, we lived in a world just before the pandemic whereby things worked so smoothly often that, you know, there was uh, um you know, that, that maybe companies didn't think enough how much it relied, as I said, not even on a country, but sometimes on certain factories, uh, one certain factory in one certain city in China that produced something for almost the entire global market. Now, that is clearly, I think, something companies are rethinking. Now, before one says, though, uh, efficiency no longer matters, you know, I would say a company's resilience also depends on its efficiency. You know, I mean, it always has to take into consideration costs, its competitiveness in a global market. So, uh, you know, I think um, uh, resilience, yes, uh, but I think one would never advise against efficiency. Uh, so I think we will land somewhere uh, in the middle. And if one talks to corporates, it's, you know, it's easy sometimes for, for economists to, uh, or journalists, you know, to go out with certain uh, terms and certain trends. Uh, if one talks to those who actually have to implement them on the corporate level, they often have a more differentiated view for good reasons. And last question, as you look towards the summer, towards the end of 2023, are you optimistic about the global economy? Uh, 
Overall, yes. And I would say yes, because uh, one always has to uh, think of the perspective. You know, I mean, uh, yes, you know, could it be better? Of course. Uh, is it actually quite optimistic from where we came from, where, where I thought we would be, you know, let's say six months ago, where I thought we would be now? I'm actually quite optimistic. You know, some things, uh, think about the European energy uh, situation, you know, have, have turned out better than we thought. China opened earlier than we expected. The U.S. has been more resilient uh, uh, so far. Uh, you know, never forget, uh, we talk a lot about the cost of living crisis. Yes. And by the way, I'm still concerned a bit about food prices. Energy is coming down, but food prices have been high. I think that continues to be a concern for me, the food situation. But in developed markets, we have almost full employment everywhere. You know, low unemployment rates, the lowest in decades. A relatively robust wage growth, not fully compensating for all the inflation, but uh, doing in part so. And probably in the coming uh, in the coming uh, quarters, when inflation comes down, you know, actually households should be looking uh, looking okay. In particular, if in, in unemployment remains uh, as low as it, it has been. Great. Well, Christian, thank you so much for joining Radio Davos. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Christian Keller is the head of economic research at Barclays. You can read the chief economist outlook on our website, reform.org, where you can also follow the action from the Growth Summit live or on catch up. Please subscribe to Radio Davos wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and a review and join the conversation on the World Economic Forum Podcast Club on Facebook. This episode of Radio Davos was presented by me, Robin Pomeroy, with reporting by Spencer Feingold, editing by Taz Kelleher, studio production by Gareth Nolan. We'll be back with more from the Growth Summit very soon. But for now, thanks to you for listening and goodbye.